This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. After yesterday's uh, brilliant paper by Dr. Herrmann, there was a, a question from over here, which was along the lines of how, in the context of the seemingly relentless advance of secularism, do we keep hold of the reality of Christ's victory uh, and the inauguration of the kingdom of God? How can we remain connected to that decisive victory? And this morning, I want to try and trace out an answer to that question in relation to the theology of the third petition of the Our Father as understood by Aquinas, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, in the state of original justice, the worship of God would have originated from an unmodified sense of God's transcendent triune glory and a concomitant recognition of our creaturely finitude. But for us in the state of the wayfarer, us for whom the Our Father was instituted, prayer more often than not begins with a sense of frustration or even disappointment, a sense not only of the fragility of the world, of the finitude of creation, but of its radical and sometimes self-destructive precarity, an intuition that the world is not, or at least not yet, as it should be that the times are in some way out of joint and even sometimes a sense of God's absence from our world. And so this morning, I'm going to answer yesterday's question by reflecting on one element of St. Thomas's presentation of the petition, Thy will be done, which speaks directly to that sense of frustration or even disappointment. And that's in the catechetical instructions where he associates this petition with the beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. And in particular, I want to develop an account of lamentation as a practice which is proper to our wayfaring state, a practice that marks out the distinctively Christian existential by which we are able to indwell that eschatological tension between the already and the not yet, which Dr. Harriman spoke uh, of yesterday. Lamentation is, I think, one of the keys by which we as theologians and as people of prayer are to grow in Christian maturity and faithfully perform the will of God in our lives. And so that means uh, that taking up this response of lamentation means that I'm going to have to leave aside or at least defer to the quadlibital discussions, a range of very juicy and tempting theological speculations about God's will, such as the debate uh, between Banyas, Banyesians and Marinsola, and focus quite tightly on doing God's will in the mode of lamentation. And I plan to move in five stages. First of all, I want to underline for you why I think lamentation is important as a means of doing God's will in the face of spiritual disappointment. By proposing lamentation as a disciplined refusal of nihilism. And secondly, I want to show that lamentation operates within what I call the non-spectacular middle-voiced perspective in which God wills that his will be done on earth by raising human agency to co cooperate 
in his providential governance of creation. And he does that through the ordinary, something which Father Koo hinted at yesterday morning. Thirdly, I'm going to argue that there are situations in which lamentation is not only morally permissible, but actually necessary to doing God's will. And I argue, fourthly, that this is so because what we lament is the consequent will of God. And finally, that by lamentation with Christ in Gethsemane, Christ the exemplar of our lamentation in an utterly obedient way, we are engaged in the ars moriendi, preparing ourselves to say, thy will be done at the moment of our death. And so to die well with Christ and rise with him into post-lamentation glory. But before I begin, it might well be well just to say what I mean by lamentation, to give a description of lamentation as I see it appearing in the scriptures. And I take lamentation to be an expression of grief or of mourning within the framework of a covenantal relationship, often in the context of a crisis in which moving forward towards our promised beatitude is either stalled or particularly onerous. Lamentation, it seems to me, is always accompanied by a recognition of human failure, of our neediness or our brokenness in the sight of God. And that the petition, thy will be done, involves a kind of lamentation, can be seen from the three things that Aquinas takes us to be praying for, uh, to be requesting in his catechetical instructions when we pray this petition of the Our Father. And the first thing that he takes us to be requesting, and I think this is the overall architectonic thing which gives structure to the theology of the third petition, is that God's will for our salvation be realized and come to fulfillment in the particular. Just as God's universal saving will has been particularized in the case of the saints who are now in heaven, so we pray that it will be definitively particularized for us, first person plural, at the moment of our individual particular judgments. And in that way, we acknowledge that we are still on the way, that we are in viatorum, in a period of probation and moral testing, and that we can therefore still fail to live up to the purpose for which God has created us. And the second aspect for which Aquinas takes us to be praying in this petition is for an observance of the commandments, the commandments that God prescribes and wills for us to keep. And two things, I think, need to be unpacked here. The first is that this aspect of fidelity to the commandments is really just a gloss on that first thing that we pray for, that we be numbered among those who are saved. It follows from our desire that God's salvific will be fulfilled in our case, that we should also desire to keep God's commandments. The law is, after all, not an arbitrary set of regulations, but an ordinance of reason that functions to signpost, to point us along the road to salvation. They are, then, the law, the external aids implemented by God to bring about our salvation. And since willing an end, involves willing the necessary means to that end, 
So praying for our salvation implies that we are also praying for ourselves and our custody of God's commandments. And interestingly enough, the analogy that Thomas uses here is medicinal. And it's very telling in the later works of Aquinas, he often uses more medicinal analogies. He uses the analogy of a doctor who wills the health of an individual by implementing a regime of diet and medicine and so forth. And the second observation related to this petition that we keep the law is that it takes place within a history of success and failure, of virtue and of vice, of struggle and of victory, of relapse and regression. So we can take it here that there's a profound sense of realism in this petition, a recognition that we stand greatly in need of God's assistance and that God's, that, the, uh, that we live up to the fidelity that God requires of us, requires that we, like Israel, grapple and wrestle with the divine word and bear the marks of that struggle within our bodies. And the third aspect of the petition is one I find particularly interesting. And to some extent, it indicates the metaphysical grounds from which this sense of struggle that characterizes our battle with habitual sins emerges. And here, Aquinas takes us to be praying for the fulfillment of God's will, for the restoration of the integrity of the human person, a restoration of ourselves to that state of integrity which characterized original innocence, a right ordering of our sensual nature with our intellectual nature, a correct collaboration of body and spirit. And there is here a recognition that our fallen condition is marked by a certain tragedy. Our bodily constitution is not yet fully transparent to our spiritual desires, and nor are our appetites entirely subject to reason. And this marks not only the absence of the preternatural gifts of integrity that Adam lost along with sanctifying grace, it also indicates the presence of a kind of entropy or spiritual chaos the disorder of the chaos monster that we talked about yesterday, which touches upon our very natures. In other words, the fault line uh, of the struggle with disappointment that characterizes our spiritual life is not one that's just out there in the world, in world history. It cuts down the middle of our own lives. As St. Paul puts it, we so often do the very things that we do not want to do. And so in praying for God's will to be done, we're praying for the restoration of ourselves to a state of integrity, praying in the end for healing. So each one of those petitions maps out a journey between the already and the not yet, and so touches on the practice of lamentation. So why is lamentation so important? The importance of developing a theologically convicted sense of lamentation to negotiate the existential and spiritual condition of the wayfarer can be seen on two levels. Firstly, within the structure of the Our Father itself. This petition forms something of a hinge from uh, petitions that concern principally our relationship to God and his glory and the remaining petitions which concern the particularities of wayfaring humanity, bread, forgiveness, social cohesion, and so on. 
So an understanding of how to lament ought to inform how we ask for the things that we need for our journey. And secondly, and perhaps more dramatically, I think we can see around us the social and political consequences of an unconfigured, uncorrected form of disappointment, a form of disappointment that expresses itself in nihilism, the ambient nihilism of many of our contemporaries. And by nihilism, I simply mean those who are so ready to be disappointed, so ready to concede the basic meaninglessness of the world. Those whose disappointment with history, reality, and circumstances is so acute that it becomes the basis for a whole worldview. And this we see in both explosive and implosive forms. Explosive forms that are actively seeking to undo the structures that give meaning to a society. Uh, and implosive forms which passively sit back and watch what they take to be the auto-deconstruction of church and society. And over the last two years with COVID, we've become quite familiar with the oscillation of the news cycle between false utopianism, the idea that we've discovered a vaccine which is going to solve all of our problems, and then the abject despair of yet another variant. This movement between despair and abandonment and a feeling that we've worked it all out. And it's not hard, I think, to see similar spiritual tendencies that creep into our spiritual lives. In fact, implosive and explosive nihilism uh, have resonances with two classical heresies which haunt our understanding of how God's will is to be performed and enacted in our lives. Now, these views don't share nihilism's relentless negativity, its embrace of hopelessness, but they do imitate it in terms of its operations of the will as basically assertive or interjective. And the first of these, of course, is Pelagianism, an analogue of explosive nihilism. Pelagianism essentially locating everything that is decisive within the capacity of human action itself, stressing the human capacity for perfectibility with unaided natural capacity. Pelagianism says, if you like, it's up to us to do God's will. God wouldn't give us a task which is too difficult for us to fulfill. And so we need to get on and do it. Pelagianism synthesizes an optimism about human capacity and perfectibility with a pessimism about God's willingness to assist us, God's capacity to support us. God's absence here veers towards deism. And at the opposite end of the spectrum to Pelagianism, we find quietism, or if I'm being uh, a little provocative, classical Protestantism, uh, which is an analogue of sit back and watch implosive nihilism, leaving everything up to God and admitting no significant room for human cooperation or responsibility. It's tempting to see quietism as the inverse of Pelagianism, a pessimism concerning human capacity and an over-optimism concerning the will of God. But there can, of course, be no over-optimism concerning the power of God. In fact, what we see here is a thoroughgoing pessimism concerning divine action itself, positing a God who can only assist us 
by intervening within creation, by overriding or overruling his creature. So to pray, thy will be done, as I'm going to present it, is to take a disciplined stance against that nihilism. It's to recognize that the world is, despite the darkness of, at time, that we at times experience, the world still is possessed of a natural goodness and still the place in which the light of God's grace shines. To pray, thy will be done, is an antidote both to the false utopia that unduly stresses the human perfectibility of society, but also against an easy cynicism, a dystopia that refuses the possibility of any social improvement. And lamentation here is important because it's a strategy of mature and well-ordered negotiation of frustration, disappointment, and tragedy. Lacking any capacity for authentic lamentation, both Pelagianism and quietism risk a collapse back into nihilism. But mature lamentation, by contrast, systematically refuses nihilism whilst avoiding both the abrogation of responsibility and the usurpation of divine authority to ourselves. Now, in his catechetical instruction on this petition, Thomas repeatedly stresses the need to avoid those extremes of Pelagianism and quietism. As he notes, the perfect wisdom of God is manifest in the very wording of this petition itself. Thy will be done, not let us do your will, which would put too great an emphasis on human agency, nor you do your will, which would totally abrogate human responsibility. God does not wish to save us except through our cooperation. And throughout his teaching on this petition, Thomas is concerned to excavate what we might call a middle-voiced perspective, an account of how the will of God is enacted in the lives of those who are raised to friendship with him by grace. And on the one hand, there is a basic receptivity, a fundamental receptivity from God. We are dependent upon God who holds our freedom in being in every moment of its existence. God is the first cause of all of our free action. And likewise, our intellects and our wills are receptive to the influx of divine influence. Yet this influx actuates our intellects and wills. It brings them into act. God's grace elevates and ennobles our freedom. It makes more of us, not less. And so a distinctively Thomistic theology of grace gives an account that is, uh, play, has a place that is decisive, but relative for human agency, for engraced human action. Without ever sacrificing the determinative significance of God's action at each and every moment of the process, nonetheless, there is a decisive but relative role for us to play in the doing of God's will. By sharing in God's enactment of God's will in human action, human action itself does more than it does on either the quietist or the Pelagian perspective. More than a quietist account of the will, because it actually does something. 
but more than a Pelagian account of the will, because now our wills are empowered to do something divine. They are empowered to do something more than we could do by the unaided exigencies of our created nature alone. But it's important to see the way in which this middle-voiced perspective, uh, actually uh, this middle-voiced account of the enactment of God's will in history, not only has the human creature doing more, but also has God doing more. Somewhere along the lines in our culture, it's become uh, habitual to think of God as doing more in moments of spectacular intervention, moments of theophanic manifestation, moments of drama and interruption and miracle and the extraordinary things that God has done. We tend to see that as doing more than God does in our ordinary everyday lives as he feeds us on his word and sacrament. And this cultural preoccupation with the spectacular, in fact, has come to be a kind of Procrustean bed within which we force God's action to conform. We demand that God reveal himself in spectacular ways. To trace the roots of this cultural demand for the spectacular, it's helpful, I think, to take a step back and to see what both Pelagianism and Quietism have in common. And that's the view that something is either done by God or done by humanity. These are either or uh, situation. Either God does it or we do it. And within such a view, there is a tacit position in which human agency and God's agency are posited as basically competitor forms of agency. There is a sense in which the human will and the divine will are the same type of thing, things that might compete with one another, although the odds are always stacked in God's favour because God's will is bigger and more powerful than ours. And as a result of this false picture of the uh, human agency and God's agency as being the same type of things, we've be become normal for us to model the way in which God relates to the world in terms of intervention language. If God is to act in human history, then it must be by an intervention into an otherwise closed system that operates according to its own distinctive laws and principles. And the problem with uh, intervention language, apart from the fact that it's false, um, <laughs> is that it, uh, it it inscribes a violent metaphor. It suggests a remoteness, an almost forensic aloofness of God over and beyond the world. God intervenes in these violent ways, but that's not consistent with God, who is the first cause of our free action. God is already far more intimately involved in the causal structures of the world, simply by holding them in being precisely as causal. There is no creaturely agency which could be outside of divine agency in the sense in which the basilica is outside of the window. So the more of God's agency, which is secured in this middle-voiced perspective, is twofold. First, God does more in that he glorifies himself by glorifying the creature, raising us to participate 
in and share in his providential governance of creation. And secondly, God does more in that his entanglement with creaturely agency is already so intimate that it problematizes any kind of interventionist account. Before I draw some preliminary conclusions about what all of this means for a theology of lamentation, I want to just pause to note the way in which this theology that I've been discussing might inform our approach to discernment in the sense of discerning or working out our vocation, the state in life that will conform our lives to God's will most directly. And at least from my perspective in the UK, there are two distinct uh, temptations here. Either a Pelagian uh, concern, that we're going to work this out for ourselves. We're going to sit down and work out what our vocation is and then put it into practice. Or a quietistic concern, which demands that God just tell us. Just tell me what to do, God. Send me a fax down the celestial fax machine and then I will get on with it. And many candidates considering priesthood or religious life are uh, seeking such signs that would have been called by an older theology signal graces, signs of divine presence, grace, or consolation that point the discerner in the right way. And that's all well and good. But there are a number of risks here that we do well to reflect upon. And these are risks of disconnecting our discernment of the spirit from an intrinsically theological account of how God's will is to be done in our life. The first risk is a risk that the domain of interiority be so stressed that the discerner locates him or herself as the sole agent of their discernment, explicitly or implicitly excluding the church community and the external authorities of scripture, tradition, and so forth. And secondly, there can be an over-optimism about our capacity and the extent to which we can ever know God's will with certainty, with a correlated difficulty in negotiating the inevitable uncertainty that accompanies any form of Christian discipleship. And the ability to tolerate that uncertainty is a matter of spiritual maturity. But another risk of an unreflected search for signal graces is that it indulges precisely that preoccupation with spectacularity that I mentioned above. Who ultimately are we to demand that God's self-communication me measures up to standards that we can assess and evaluate? A discerner might very well anticipate that a Road of Damascus-style conversion experience would bring a degree of firmness and resolve and certainty to their life, and so it might. But the demand for such an experience might very well veer towards quietism and a denial of the middle-voiced perspective. And even if there are such experiences uh, of profound encounter with the Lord, and I know many of us will have had them, these need to be tested and interrogated and questioned with the full use of reason and in dialogue with external guidance and the authority of the church.
And more often than not, the passage from what Newman calls a notional ascent into a real ascent is not marked by spectacularity, but by an inconspicuous and almost inarticulable moment of intellectual conversion. So it's not without consequence that Thomas associates this particular petition with the gift of knowledge. The will is, after all, the faculty of being attracted to that which is apprehended as good by the intellect. And faith, as the habitual, divinely infused modification of our intellect to apprehend the things of God, always has to be given a preeminence in questions of discernment. Strengthening faith by making acts of faith, hope and love, by study and contemplation of sacred truth is rarely spectacular. It's often ascetic and demanding, but it is crucial to knowing, discerning and ultimately doing the will of God. So I want to draw three preliminary conclusions that I, from the account of the middle voice that I've been developing that speak to the need for a theology of lamentation. First of all, lamentation is a distinctively human activity. It belongs neither to the angels who move towards God by a single motion, nor does it belong towards, uh, nor does it belong to non-human animals who are not self-moving in the relevant sense. It belongs to us as time-bound creatures who move towards God by numerous motions, who live within the succession of salvation history, and who are unique among the material creatures in being possessed of an intellect to apprehend in partial and fragmentary ways the will of God. More than this, lamentation of the type I am describing is intrinsically relational. Although the prayer, thy will be done, maps a gap between promised eschatological consummation and the existential reality we perceive with our senses, this petition only occurs as nested within the hour of the Our Father. If this lamentation is partially complaint, and sometimes it has to be, then this is analogous to the protestations of a child held within the love of a parent. And like a child lamenting the will of a parent, there may be elements of testing in which the limits of love are pushed. But in the case of divine love, there are no limits. By definition, it is infinite. And so the process of attempting to push at the limits of divine love are really pushing at the limits of our self-understanding. And this process of pushing at the limits of our understanding of God's love changes us since it enables us to rest more securely within the divine love whose mysteries we plumb to a new depth. And secondly, and following on from this, lamentation is not a disinterested praxis. We can't lament something in a textbook. And I mean this in two senses. In the first place, we can't lament except as those who must acknowledge our own complicity in the structures of sin and disorder that we are lamenting. We are, after all, lamenting a failure of cooperation in the divine will. But more than this, lamentation is self-involving. 
It's not reducible to an intellectual activity, but invokes, we might even say provokes and evokes, our desires for our own well-being and for that of others. And thirdly, I'm not going to have time to develop this, but lamentation is uh, of the kind I'm describing is not principally a negative activity, but a disciplinary aspect to the theological virtue of hope. Hope, which depends on the theological virtue of faith, is that virtue which perfects our wills to move towards God as the ultimate good, which is arduous but possible to attain. By God's gracious assistance, we lean into God as our future. And lamentation is the kind of obverse side of that, in which we lament those things which are not yet fully uh, kind of leaned in or, or needed in to God's, uh, to, to God's future, God as our future. Now, at this point, I think it's worth uh, addressing a potential objection, albeit one that I think is grounded in a misunderstanding of lamentation. And the objection might run something like this. The petition, thy will be done, and the practice of lamentation are mutually exclusive. Because saying thy will be done calls for a resignation or self-abandonment to the divine will. Whereas the latter, lamentation, is a form of protest or grumbling about the deliverances of the divine will, and therefore a shifting of the perspective onto humanity when it ought to be on God. And there are, of course, obvious elements of truth in that. A good deal of the time, we are not self-transparent and do not really know what we want. We can even want incompatible goods, and each of us must accept the cross which is ours to carry. But acceptance in this sense is neither the same thing as a secularized form of stoicism, nor does it refuse to coexist with lamentation. Indeed, whether we understand the virtuous mode of response as resignation or self-abandonment, those have to be middle-voiced responses. They're not simply a putting of the will into neutral, a disengagement and refusal to engage with the word of God. And so we can push this further. There might be circumstances in which self-abandonment to the will of God actually entails lamentation. That lamentation is characteristically human, suggests that there are certain circumstances in which lamentation is not only permissible, but actually required. Required as a properly human response that performs God's will. And so there are, I think, certain circumstances in which a failure to lament would indicate something missing or imperfect about our humanity. As, for instance, somebody who is impassive or unmoved by the scenes of destruction that we're seeing from Ukraine. We do not have to think here only about spectacular forms of evil or certain kinds of outrageous injustice that cry out to heaven for vengeance, but also of the very uh, ordinary and perhaps inevitable sufferings of life the death of a parent, our own death, our own illness, for instance, are things that will mark almost all human histories. But the ordinariness of death, which we might take to be a consequence of its being natural to the type of uh, composite creatures that we are, ought not to obscure a deeper reality 
But in one sense, it is a deviation from God's first plan for us and unnatural in the fact that our souls have a certain capacity for immortality and a tendency towards the eternal. To respond to the death of a loved one as something we must simply accept as part of reality is something that certain secular forms of poetic piety might encourage, but it's not consistent with the liturgy of the church. Nor can we follow the logic of this to a conclusion that would ultimately rob the crucifixion of its genuinely theodramatic dimension. And on one level, it seems that there is a biblical warrant for a kind of audacious lamentation as a form of doing God's will. It's worth noting in this respect that although Job's lamentation is in some sense a cry against the will of God, God nonetheless says that Job has spoken well of him, quite unlike Job's counsellors, those useless theologians who sought to provide a limp apology for God's justice and divine innocence. If you have time later in the day, read through some of Job's lamentations when he says to God, why do you do this? Why, O watcher of men, do you not take away my sin? I will not speak except in bitterness of soul and so on. You will call me and I shall answer you, etc., etc. And interestingly, those texts from Job formed part of the matins for the dead in the older liturgy, prayed, as it were, as a lamentation in the name of the deceased person. And death, it seems to me, is precisely one such moment where lamentation is naturally demanded of us. It is natural for us to recoil from death, both our own death, and for those, uh, the death of those to whom we are bound by natural affinity and bonds of love. And to get some perspective on these moments where lamentation might be obligatory, it's worth reflecting further on the character of the divine will, its infallibility and inscrutability. And the first point to make here is that when we say thy will be done, this petition is precisely that. It's a petition. When we say thy will be done, we're not dealing with a simple statement of fact or a rhetorical flourish. And to see why this is not the case, it's helpful to reflect on the sense in which we might use the same words in a rhetorical or descriptive way. One such route would be to take the term will metaphorically in terms of what theologians have called the voluntas signi, particular mode of manifestation that is called the divine will in that it functions as an expression or manifestation of the divine will. And in the Prima Pars, Thomas enumerates five such expressed manifestations of the divine will. Permission and operation, that's to say, either letting something happen or actually doing it. Uh, and then prohibition, counsel, and precept, more noetic categories, which interestingly, Thomas says that he's read off the Lord's Prayer. But um, uh, yeah. I can't see how you can do that, but Thomas had uh, an engraced intellect far exceeding mine. Certainly, there's nothing wrong to take uh, thy will be done to refer to such voluntas sinye. After all, we are binding ourselves to do or avoid that which is manifested to be done or avoided in such signs. But nonetheless, the reference to the transcendent dimension as it is in heaven, suggests a movement beyond the realm of signs and into the realm of reality. So we're speaking here, I think, 
of God's will per se and not just manifestations. If we take it then that the will that is to be done refers to the divine will properly so-called, then we run into a problem. The basic dogmatic fact that nothing can strictly frustrate the will of God, that God is in no way moved by exterior compulsion or internal necessity. His character and actions are in no way determined by the created effects that they bring about. In other words, nothing, absolutely nothing, can escape divine providence. And in a strict sense, everything that happens is an expression of God's will, from which nobody and nothing can escape or elude. Precisely as the omnipotent will of God, the divine will brings about that which it wills with a perfect divine infallibility. And since the divine will admits of no direct frustration, what sense can be made of asking that it be done? And what space is left for lamentation? Well, two distinctions with which many of you will be familiar help to map out this terrain with some clarity. The first, between an antecedent will of God and a consequent will, and the second, between a good that is willed directly and something which is indirectly willed in direct consequence of another good. The antecedent or uncircumstanced will of God is, roughly speaking, the overall plan, uh, the, the root and fundamental ground of the impetus of God's dealings with creation ad extra. And the consequent will of God is, again, very roughly the kind of fine-tuning of that antecedent will of God. It's the uh, fine-tuning of that plan of salvation that all be saved to the particular definite circumstances in the light of a permissive decree to allow human freedom to express itself in sin and evil. Now, these, of course, are logical distinctions. They move by degrees of determination, and they're not chronological. The consequent will of God is not reactive in anything like a human sense, nor does it follow sequentially from the permissive decree to allow the fall. But on the part of humanity, it's helpful for us to see some shape and structure to the will of God, so as to see how we can make sense without logical contradiction of a claim that on one level, God wills the salvation of all, and yet on another level, God wills the eternal punishment of the damned. And since the consequent will of God, the fine-tuning to particular circumstances, admits of no frustration, it seems to me that it makes most sense to see the petition, thy will be done, as relating to the antecedent, the primordial will of God, and this uncertainty of how that will be applied in the circumstance will of God in relation to us. In other words, thy will be done occupies a space between our knowledge by faith of God's primordial will that all be saved and our awareness of the, the reality that God's circumstanced will in some sense deviates from that. To pray thy will be done is to hope that the extent to which God's consequent will involves a divergence from his antecedent will for the salvation of all will be minimized and circumscribed by unmerited divine mercy. And thus that the gap between God's primordial desire for salvation of all and the final state of affairs as revealed on the public stage at the general judgment will turn out to be minimal. 
The discipline of lamentation then is one that recognizes that sin permitted but not willed by God has brought about from our perspective a quasi-modification in God's economy by which God's primordial will is now refracted through his circumstanced and consequent will. The second related distinction, I think, helps us to unpack the meaning of this mystery, that between things which are directly willed and things that are indirectly willed. And as I've said, sin is permitted, but not directly willed by God. And the reasons for that are located in the classical understanding of sin as a privation of being. And as a privation, sin does not need or could not be held in being by divine action. Yet sin committed, malum culpe, evil committed, is only, it's only one type of evil that we encounter. There's also another kind, malum pene, evil which is suffered. And whereas malum culpe is the privation of being goodness, malum pene occurs when one good drives out another good as incompatible. There is here a kind of flip side or shadow side to God's willing of one good in that he drives out another good. To take an example, the good of a lion's existence implies the death of the lamb, insofar as the lamb is the food consumed by the lion. In this example, the lion is directly willed, but the lamb's death is indirectly willed as a necessary consequence of the directly willed good. And importantly, the logic of indirect and direct willing comes into play in cases of punishment, whether those be punishment implemented by human authorities or punishment enacted by God. In these cases, the directly willed good of justice is annexed to an indirectly willed malum pene. This, of course, raises interesting eschatological questions, which I will defer but for the purposes of reflecting on lamentation and how God's will is to be done, it's important that we do not have to bring ourselves to love directly or directly will that which God has only indirectly willed. We do not have to come to terms without lament to the malum pene that we experience in this life, even if we do have to accept them. In fact, if we were to will them directly, not only would that involve uh, uh, the negation of certain natural dynamics and thus involve a dehumanization of us, it would actually bestow on the suffered evils a positivity that God himself withholds from them. Aquinas uses an analogy from the exercise of human judicial authority, which is illuminating. Leaving aside questions relating to the lyseity of the death penalty in general for a moment, suppose that a judge wills the execution of a criminal for reason of the common good. The criminal's wife or son will for him to be spared. And the same situation is here viewed from different perspectives. On both sides, the parties have goodwill, though the wills are not perfectly aligned since they're conditioned by different relational frameworks and the distinct responsibilities to which they give rise. The judge's more general accountability to the common good gives rise to his particular decree, but the criminal's family are bound by more particular human relationships of familial tie. And in the analogy 
the will can therefore resolve onto two divergent intentions without compromising the moral character of the intention. We could even say that it would be wrong for the criminal's family to will his death, even if it would, in the same case, be wrong for the judge not to, to prescind from the death penalty. But a conflict of will only arises in a strict sense in the event that the criminal's family failed to recognise the demands of the common good to which they, like the judge, are also accountable. When, for instance, or if, they conspired to help the criminal elude the just punishment. So although they cannot positively will the death of their family member, they are morally obliged not to frustrate the ends of justice. What we see then is a basic or fundamental grounding in consensus within which divergent perspectives can emerge. And this helps us, I think, to understand why it is that Aquinas deals with the question of conformity of our will to God in two distinct articles in the Prima Secundae. Question 19, Article 9, handles the conformity of human will to God um, as God as the sovereign good in a kind of general and overarching sense. And Article 10, which raises the question of whether the goodness of human willing depends upon conformity to the divine will in respect of a particular thing that is willed. Article 10 is particularly interesting, incidentally, because it's one of those moments where Aquinas diverges from the usual pattern of the summer in that he places the view that he eventually agrees with within the objection. But the extension of the analogy from judicial authority uh, is worth spelling out. The antecedent primordial will of God is the kind of ecology or common good of the cosmos, which must be affirmed and acknowledged and which forms the backdrop for our spiritual lives. But the particular nexus of relations that make up our human lives are distinct and particular. And importantly, it's God's will that they be distinct and particular and that we be faithful to them honouring our natural inclinations towards our loved ones and our own good without losing confidence in God's mercy or the wisdom of his primordial will. And so to endure these moments of trial by deepening our faith in the unfathomable riches and depths of God's infinite wisdom, justice and mercy. Lamentation, then, is the instrument in our spiritual toolkit by which we can indwell that middle-voiced position in moments of profound spiritual conflict and discouragement, laying hold of those supernatural virtues of faith and hope and charity so as to do God's will without bypassing or overriding our natural inclinations and desires. I hope this uh, suggestion that we cultivate the practice of lamentation drawn from Thomas's theology of thy will be done provides something of an answer to yesterday's question. But an exemplary expression, it can be found in the first of the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary, Christ's agony in the garden, where, according to St. Matthew, Christ himself makes his own this petition. Aquinas' analysis of the volitional integrity of Christ, especially as exercised in Gethsemane, is extremely complex but highly instructive. To summarise it briefly, 
Christ's humanity is perfect and complete. Consequently, he is possessed of sense appetites and a will that is free to be attracted uh, to a rationally perceived good. And indeed, the integrity of Christ's human will is in no way compromised by his metaphysical impeccability. His human freedom is enhanced on account of its substantial union with divine freedom. And Aquinas, drawing here on the Eastern tradition mediated by Damascene, recognizes two dynamics within Christ's will. Thalasis, a natural attraction to what is in itself good as a goal or term of action, and boulesis, a determined choice that is made in interaction with reason as a means to an end. By Thalasis, God, uh, Christ desired the glorification of his father and the salvation of humanity. Nonetheless, like his sense appetites, in uh, his will naturally and therefore properly repudiated anything that damaged human nature, especially death. And that aversion to death was in no way an imperfection, but a right and a proper expression of well-ordered human inclinations. Nonetheless, Christ's boulesis translates, as it were, Christ's permanent consecration to his father's will into a determinate decision and choosing to uh, face a rational choice against immediate natural inclination and for the means to an important end. And so Christ laments in Gethsemane as we ought to lament in a fallen world without any deviation from the father's will or imperfection in his obedience. It should be said that determining with Belisis a course of action to which we are averted by Thelesis is something that we do on a natural level quite regularly as when we endure painful medical treatment. But it's also something that the martyrs do on a supernatural level when they accept death as a witness to faith. And although such decisions may cause us grief, I suggest reserving the term lamentation to those moments that are second personal with respect to God's will. Moments in which praying thy will be done involves an, an acknowledgement of our natural aversion to the contents of God's consequent will will help us to negotiate a fallen world. In embracing this perspective of lamentation quite consciously and uniting it to Christ's obedient doing of the Father's will, we are, I think, embracing Christ's call to share in his self-oblation on a daily basis. We are dying with Christ, as St. Paul puts it. And the mortification implied in such lamentation is, of course, a preparation for our own death. By working through our spiritual trials on the way, by way of lamentation, we are already engaged in the art of dying well, knowing that at the hour of our death, saying, thy will be done, we will, by God's grace, die with Christ and rise with him into glory, where all lamentation will be put behind us. Thank you. struggle with as a vice, and among uh, the counsel that I've heard given to such individuals usually involves, frankly, a grace of hope, but I'm not sure if I've ever heard the counsel specifically say, uh, practice lamentation as an expression of that hope. And so what I've gathered from your presentation is that lament uh, is counteractive to despair as 
as, as actively hopeful, and even though it recognizes genuine loss, as does despair, uh, it holds to an eschatology that despair forsakes. And so my question is, uh, would you say that in the case of spiritual direction or something of the sort, that advising lamentation could be an effective strategy for overcoming the vice of despair? Yes. <laughs> I mean, to, to add more to my yes, um, I think it's incredibly important that, that we acknowledge honestly and humanly moments of spiritual trial and that we talk to God as to a friend about the difficulties that we face. There's no good going into chapel when you're filled with anger and resentment and your life is falling apart and saying, thank you, God, for the, for the sunny day. You know, we should be open and honest in our uh, in our prayers with the Lord. Uh, and lamentation is a way of doing that. But the difference between lamentation and despair for me would be fundamentally about movement. Despair uh, as, a, as a vice opposed to hope is ultimately a, a despair that refuses the movement of hope towards God. It says the journey is too difficult for me to continue. Whereas presumption demands that God comes to me. Despair says, I, I just can't do this. There's no point continuing. The journey is too difficult. I don't trust God's help enough. Whereas lamentation is a, a refusal to give up uh, and therefore to say in the midst of what might be termed despair in a loose sense, I'm going to continue talking to you because although I don't agree with your consequent will here and now, I know that your antecedent primordial love is uh, for my good. Brother Hallward, thank you so much. That was a fantastic presentation. Um, my question is along those same lines, um, Brother John Baptist. You know, often you, times you hear it said, everything happens for a reason. And I found that to be frustratingly unhelpful in many times in my life. Um, so, how would you say that the practice of lamentation, the theology of lamentation, can kind of supply what's missing there? Which I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but is something to say about, I mean, like you said, evil is a privation. It doesn't really have, it can't really have a cause. There's no, you know, you don't want to just say like, oh, the the island or the island of Haiti was wiped out by a hurricane because something better is going to happen, you know, consequent upon it or something like that. So yeah, uh, I guess that's my question. How, did, how does the practice of lamentation, the theology of lamentation supply what's missing there and a recognition of yeah, the existential problem of evil, I guess. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's a great question. I mean, uh, we have to be very clear about what we mean by privation accounts of evil. Obviously, I mean, Father Herbert McCabe used to say, if you drive your car off a cliff, you have nothing to worry about. We have something to worry about, but you have nothing to worry about. Um, so first thing is to say, you know, when we say that evil is, is nothing or is a privation, uh, we're not denying it, it, that it has a certain power. Um, or that it has a certain impact on people's lives. The second um, thing with regard to everything happening for a reason, you know, I, um, I, I love teaching theology. It's one of the passion of my life. And um, one thing that I've noticed increasingly in the last few years is that people want to know the answer, right? They want to know where I stand on Delubac and Kajitan. They want to know where I stand on Banyas and Marin Sola. They want to know what the right understanding of And you know, some of these things I've been thinking about for 20 years, and I don't know the answer. And I think part of what lamentation um, is about is about acknowledging that we just don't know as much as we would like to know, but that we're on a journey of continuing to deepen our understanding. 
And so I think that there's real power in lamentation, tarrying with the uncertainties of a spiritual life, which is about, as I said, spiritual maturity. That in the end, we commit ourselves to whatever state of life we commit ourselves in the midst of uh, kind of unknown unknowns, to quote somebody who um, was once near here. Um, you know, we don't know. And, and yet we, ha- we know enough to make a commitment and we have a confidence in the divine benevolence that um, enables us to maturely tolerate those things that we do not yet understand. So, yes, that's, that's how I might see uh, lamentation filling the gaps, although I'm not sure that the gaps will ever be filled this side of, of the eschaton. Thank you very much for your talk, Father Keenan. Um, I was wondering, because a lot of the counsel or literature around death and illness uh, speaks of the language of grief and grief. So I was wondering if, if what for you might be the distinction between lamentation and grief, or lamentation and grieving, and are they synonymous, or is there something there that we can uh, understand better so that we can improve how we counsel people who are in these situations? Great question. Um, Grief and mourning is obviously part of natural and spiritual responses to, to death and other evils that we suffer. Where I think lamentation differs, and grieving is important. I mean, we, as priests and, and you know, people of prayer, we should be skilled in the matters of the human heart, which enable us to accompany people on this journey so that they can work through their griefs in a human way as well as in a supernatural way. But lamentation, I think, is related but distinct in that lamentation is second personal with respect to God. When we lament, we do so within a framework of relationship with God, an unbroken relationship with God. Um, now, lamentation obviously has, has perils. We can go too far. There are, there are uh, vices on, on either side of it. Um, but basically, lamentation is is occurring within a relationship with God. And therefore, part of what I wanted to do in the paper was to suggest that we ought to keep the language of lamentation theological. You know, so often words get polluted by their secularization. Friendship is a good example, you know. Um, we ought to keep something theological about lamentation. Grief and mourning we can apply to, you know, you can mourn over uh, over um, a job that you didn't get. I often say that, you know, when you join religious life, you have to grieve for the children that you're not going to have. But, you know, those may or may not be real things, but lamentation concerns the will of God. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you, Father. this way, sorry. Thank you. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you if there wasn't a, another option, too, in terms of our response to this, these lines in the Our Father. Um, and that comes from my understanding of Augustine's letter to Probus, where he suggests that when we say, let your will be done, uh, we are doing it uh, not obviously, uh, the will is going to be done in any event, whether we acknowledge it or not, but that we do it uh, for the purpose of increasing our desire for the will of God to be done. Uh, and he, you know, uses a very homely example, Augustine does, of, um, you know, increasing our capacity, where if you know you're going to be receiving a greater amount than some container that you have, you try to increase the capacity of the container so that it will hold more. So I was just wondering if that was a third way, you know, aside from a resignation and lamentation, both of which I think are, are operative, 
but also just the idea of our acknowledging the will of God and our desire for that and our capacity for the love of God that that evidences. That's a great, um, great question. And um, drawing attention to a really important uh, element, I think, of uh, increasing our thirst for God's will. Uh, and often I think the challenge of the spiritual life is to sort of fall in love with the will of God. If you fall in love with the will of God, then what comes to pass matters less, as it were, than, than you know, your love of the will of God. My problem, or my caution, I think it's right, but needs to be held in check, is that I am concerned about um, any theology that would say to somebody who is raging at God because of the death of a loved one that there's something defective about their desire for God's will. And um, I know that that's not where you're going with it and certainly not where Augustine is going with it. Um, that is why I, I want to include lamentation within the bigger, uh, within the bigger picture. But yes, um, increasing our desire for God and for his will is, I think, a very important uh, complementary uh, perspective to this. I think that's all the time we have for questions uh, at the moment. Um, our next talk is at 10.30, so we have time for a brief break. But please join me in thanking Brother Keenan for this wonderful talk.